You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. Hello. I'm in Verbier for a few days at the music festival here. It's my fourth visit to the town, famed for its skiing in the winter months and for the past 25 years for its summer music festival. I love it here. It's a very special location. In the summer there is a sleepy kind of privacy to the atmosphere which lowers the heart rate and focuses the mind. And even though it's been wet nearly all of the day and the view has mostly just been a curtain of white cloud, I've had the windows of my bedroom open so that I can indulge in the sound of the rain on the road below. In the next few episodes, you'll hear from Verbier's artistic director, Martin Engstrom, about the festival's enduring appeal. In addition, you'll hear episodes featuring one or two of the artists appearing. This podcast, number 49, features one artist appearing at this year's festival, violinist Alexander Sitkovetsky. There's little to say about the musician which isn't already covered in the conversation that follows, so uncharacteristically, I won't repeat myself. But know this, what I love about making these podcasts is that they're nothing but fairly everyday conversations. It is through these conversations with practitioners that I get to learn more about the classical music world. It saves time on reading books. Journalists are told that research is key, that you need to know your subject inside out, that you need to head into an interview with loads of questions in your back pocket, and yet... I've always thought that knowing too much about the subject may actually stop you from asking questions. Curiosity, and possibly a willingness to be a little brave, is therefore key. I've learned about Menuhin, about the music education system in the Soviet Union, and how that differs from music education in Western Europe today, and one unexpected thing about Sikovetsky himself. This podcast was recorded on Sunday, the 28th of July, 2019. Uh, tell me three surprising things about you. Three surprising things about me. Um, oh, God, I'm not very surprising. I play the violin. That's surprising. It's not really. You uh, are billed as a violinist in this podcast. So we'll, uh, okay. we'll, let's start again. Uh, three surprising things. Uh, I mean, I don't know you very well, so they could be anything. Oh, but that's just not very surprising. I'm a very good person. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's, number one. That's, that's number one, you're a very good person. Yeah, I'm a very good person. Uh, number two? Um, it's tough, isn't it? Yes, because I, I cause things like being a huge sports fan, that's not surprising at all. Many musicians are You are very, a huge sports fan. Are very much into sports, so that's not very because surprising. you combine practice and watching football. I've seen pictures on Instagram. Well, that was once. No, no, that was after the concert. I was okay. eating and watching the football <laughs> okay. at the same time. But the violin was there. I assumed that you were practicing at the same time. Okay, so that's number two. Number three? Um, ooh. I, I, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but at, uh, even after a lot of experience of, of performance, I still get nervous before almost every performance. How does that manifest itself? Just, you know, just... You, like you get kind of like little butterflies and nerves, like before, as if you were going to, I don't know, like before a big football game or something. I'm sure that 
you know, players always talk about having butterflies in their stomach. So something similar. Is that anticipation rather than nerves? Um, it's probably a bit of both. And how do you do you use that, or do you just park it before you start playing? Um, depends what if they're the good nerves, then you use them. If they're the bad nerves, then you try to get rid of them. And how do you get rid of them? Just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. no, 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 no. Then, then you rely. Then realistically, you rely on on your preparation. Right. You know, if you, if you've prepared enough, you know. I always I always think that that one practices mundanely speaking, one practices so that even in their worst possible day the audience would never would never be able to tell i think there's there's even there's a i don't remember now you you i i remember all these quotes and never who said them but but there are these there was a quote by somebody basically saying that you know you, you practice you know if you stop practicing i think heifetz maybe said that if you stop practicing first you hear it then the orchestra hears it or something, and then the manager. Oh no! Then the, and then the audience hears it at 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 the end. So, so I think the the, the idea is that, that that your preparation is such that that even if it's you you don't feel great on the day, that that your 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 worst is is still is still very good. So so the mundane, banal, a constant practice is about um, bedding in muscle memory. So oh, that yeah, in those no, moments I mean, it's, it's about, said. it's about, it's always about improving and always about getting the best interpretation and the most interesting and develop, developing musically. But uh, it's, if you, as, as you build that up, then the other parts also build themselves up. I always tell to my students that one should, uh, I, I mean, there, of course, there's technical issues that one, uh, especially I'm talking about students now, have to, have to, have to fix, but it's, it's not good to practice only thinking about one thing one should one should be when one, one practices one should be able to to think about the final goal which is to make music and and um, use your ears and brain for that and then that will help with the technical side of things as well are you practicing i've i asked this because i've heard somebody else mention it but do you find yourself quite practicing away from the instrument are you running over music? Oh, very often. Oh, okay. Very, very often. Uh, I, 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 literally, I just sing it inside my head, very, even if I'm doing other things. I, I, I think that that actually can, it can work because you are, you are, you are not using it's, you, you are not physically using your your arms at that moment, but you're using your brain, in the same way as you would when you're performing. But just so the brain is still sending signals, but in this case, just the instrument is not there to actually follow. So it's good for the brain to know which signals to send. Uh, and, and how does that help you? Well, I think it's it's musically. It's just it's then when you are on stage, you 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 are you're just clear more clearly aware of of what you want to do. So I think that the musical intent is not always is not delivered through it's it, the arms are the kind of let's say the vessel but it's the the brain and the heart which are the instructions of of what what we want what we want to try and do so therefore you can develop your interpretation in your brain as as well as as when you're actually physically practicing it sounds as though there is more clarity in that situation than when when you're when you're in that mind mind state if you like because because you're more more focused on what's 
yeah, what you want I, guess, I guess so. I, 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 you know, one of one of my probably one of my most important teachers always used to say to me that that she always used to, and not only me, all her students. She, her main thing before she would even teach anything about the instrument would be to make sure that the student was listening properly to what they're doing, because and and her ears were so sharp and so aware that it it's it's amazing how. What you, you, I would be playing, and I thought that I could hear everything. And then she said, "No, you don't. You don't listen. You don't hear what you're doing." And I said, "No, but I know I am." And she goes, "No, you don't." And then when you realize that you're not, then you find it. It's amazing how how different it is. It is so. But that way, you can build yourself up and build up your interpretation much better because you are much more aware. Uh, how long has that that kind of focus taken to develop? Uh, my assumption is, sort of half knowing you, is that you've always been like that. Uh, no, I, I I became like that when I met her, and I was about first time I met her. I played for her when I was seventeen, and then I started to take more regular lessons when I was with her uh, when I was about nineteen twenty. I would go. To, she was in Russia. I would, I would travel to Russia for for kind of intense periods every few months. I'd go for ten days and have five or six lessons during those ten days, and then go back to, to UK because I was still studying at the academy at the time and getting my bachelor degree. What was, what was really striking about her? I mean, I don't know who she is. Tell, tell me about her. Well, her, her name is uh, Maya Glizarova. Uh, she passed away now two years ago. Uh, but she, she was, for, in, in, for, for, for a Russian person, that name really is a very, very unique and significant name in our whole kind of musical world and and community and uh, she was a very very important teacher she, she first was an assistant to also one of our big soviet professors yuri yankilevich and then after he passed away she um kind of i guess i'm not sure if it was officially or unofficially but she took over his his mantle uh, more or less so she had she was given his classroom which was a, a big deal at the, at the time at the moscow conservatory and uh Yes, she. So she was just a very, very unique woman. But she, she taught my uncle Dimitri when he was a child. So she, you know, she really, she started teaching. Must have been in the, would have been in the sixties already. She was teaching, and she taught a lot of other great Soviet violinists like Viktor Tritikov, Spivakov, uh, uh, Mikhail Kopelman, who was the first violinist of the Borodin Quartet for many years. And and so she, she was a very, very unique. Uh, very very unique lady. I, I think uh, for her uh, uh, about her, what was so sp- unique or special? I think it was just her absolute determination and and incredible, yeah, just 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 incredible teaching ability. I, I I don't know. It's it's difficult to with the great teachers. It's not always easy to pinpoint exactly specifically what it is about them that was so unbelievably helpful but with her for me personally at that time the 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 fact that she opened up my ears that was for me the most important thing and how did she make you do that what was it that she did that made you go you're not i mean i know that she said you're not listening you're not listening you need to listen what was the i mean that's just sort of reporting something what did she do to make you listen (laughs) she literally well i mean when we when we really got to grips with it she basically for for one week, she she took me off repertoire. She put me on open strings like a ch- child, and and she said, you, "You like once you figure out." I mean, I was nineteen, I wasn't ten, so you know, I, it, I she wasn't going to babysit me through it. But she basically explained what she was looking for. She understood, and she basically said, "Go and sort and 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 figure it out." And 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 I, I was I was at a summer course in 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 Russia. I remember, and basically every 
we'd have lessons every other day. So I had lesson on the first day. So she she killed me and sent me away. Then then <laughs> I came back two days later. She said, "No, you still haven't got it." And of course, I mean, of course, she was. Exp- I, it's not interesting specifically about what what specifically she was saying about about boat changes and, and and things like that. But she basically the gist was that I still wasn't really hearing what I was really doing. And so then, it, but then from the third lesson onwards, I figured it out. So she broke you down in order to you well not broke you down but but sort of challenged you to go back to basics. Yeah, but but it was it was really just for this for this specific thing. It it wasn't for anything to do with my overall. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 of course, the the point was that such a such a vital thing I was missing, and therefore it, it impacted my whole playing. But it's not like she sent me to do basic technical exercises and things like that although that it was part of it but the the point of it was not so much for again not so much for the physical uh part but for more for for my ears and and for my for my brain when i was uh working with the english symphony orchestra in the mid 90s i remember going to a tour in lithuania and i saw uh, the orchestra had arrived late for a rehearsal many women were going to conduct and i saw uh, a couple of families with very small children with tiny violins uh, sort of waiting at the back of the room, uh, sort of incredibly excited about the possibility of playing for Menuhin. And I and I remember that moment and th- thinking there was something slightly uncomfortable about it because it was almost like celebrity status stuff. Mm. Um, you played for him. You went to the Menuhin school. Was that, was that sort of fairly standard behaviour around Menuhin? Um... Probably, but actually, I I never really saw that so much because, I mean, of course, when he came to the Mandarin School, the, there was a when he came to visit, there was actually he, we knew what he was going to do with us in advance. So sometimes he would come and just lead the orchestra, uh, just conduct our orchestra. So that was all he was going to come for. He would stay for a few days. We'd have rehearsals. We'd have a concert or something like that, and and then he would go. Sometimes he would come and give individual lessons. But then we would know about it in advance. It's not like he would turn up oh, on the okay, day right. and and I mean you know still there was of course this the connection in the community. It is his school after all. So so things were were um, uh, organized in advance. But I, of course I can imagine that around the world. But I think that he would not have been the only one. I mean I'm sure people were queuing for our well just uh, Dorothy Delay for example the the great teacher from Juilliard School. She didn't really have a timetable when it came to her students. You know, she would have however many students she would have and they would literally just, she would just come in the morning and they would be all waiting around, waiting outside and basically she would just say, okay, now you, now you, now you and people would be waiting for as long as it took, go to some other room to practice and they'd be called and that was basically how, how it worked. And even actually, well, with with, with this, this Maya, with Glazarova in... in um, in, in when I was there in Moscow, I I sometimes would would have lessons on the same days as her other stu- actually as her official students from the Moscow Conservatory would, and she would have a, a general time when she would ask me to come, but it was always very fluid and and, and this was it's completely normal. I I can't imagine. How I mean, it sounds like a nightmare, right? No, <laughs> not at all. I, I I can imagine how many people would be waiting. For example, if Isaac Stern was coming. For example, and what are they hoping? I suppose, as an audience member, what I want to know is what are they hoping for? Are they hoping for for validation? Are they hoping for direction or a recommendation? Do do, do you see what I mean? Like yes, that? I think I think it's probably when when you are meeting such a great. I think first of all, 
well, from my personal experience, when you're that young, I don't think the child is really looking for anything. The, 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 <laughs> the parents are. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the child is going, is usually excited, of course, a little bit nervous, but they don't really know why they're nervous. And, and we, we really treat it as a lesson. I remember when I, when I was, you know, I was playing, I was eight years old, I was playing back double with Menuhin and it was, it was the most, now that I think of it, it's, of course, it's the most crazy thing, but at that time, you know, I'm an eight-year-old, what am I supposed to be nervous about? So he was just a bloke? Yeah, a very lovely old, old man who yes. played the violin and who, what he really did was actually, he taught me how to play this Bach double concerto and I've, I've kept that with me ever since. I mean, I've played that piece probably, I don't know, 70, 80 times with many different different uh violinists of all different styles and and ages and, and everything but but still a lot of the things that he told me when i went that was really actually probably one of my first introductions to bach because i was probably at eight i was guess i was too young to do any of the solo bach uh, sonatas and partitas i just was i think slowly beginning to look at the e major which is usually the first as a student, that's one of the first ones that you, you usually go for. Um, but basically, he was my really introduction to the world of Bach. What did he teach you with that work? Um, some very, very practical things about, about uh, uh, polyphony and about how the voicing works, uh, about articulation, um, about, um, yeah, about, about rhythmic vitality uh, in 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 Bar even though of course his approach was very romantic i i, I would say uh consider compared to today's let's say practices but still in rhythmic integrity rhythmic vitality the importance of certain notes over others you know just just really very very down to earth work it was really just very down to earth work but of course then he and uh, you know he was older he he was not maybe as we all know he was not the violinist of his youth mm, mm. but there were still really moments and and sometimes he would find the sounds and especially in the second movement it's it's i i i can't say honestly that i, I remember it really right now how it was but i do remember at that time thinking how it, especially the second movement how it was so nice just to play it with, play it with him um and so you went to the menu school as a result of that uh, no, it was just before. So he, he heard me in Moscow when I was, I think, seven. Right. And he invited me, and together with my first teacher and my mom, uh, my mom was a wonderful pianist, and uh, kind of accompanist and duo partner. So, so, so we, all three of us, basically, were invited to come to, to, to London, to, to, to Cobham. And uh, it was just before the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think. So it was, you know, my mom, it was not so easy, I guess, for her, because at the time I didn't know it, but obviously she had this fantastic position at the Moscow Conservatory, which still, at you know, especially for us, not having lived abroad, but only having visited, you know, Moscow Conservatory is one of the most revered and most important musical institutions. And in the 80s, and even now, but in the 80s, my mom having not been... Uh, living abroad, but only traveling abroad for concerts. Of course, for her, Moscow Conservatory was was the top, and you know this was, it it, it was a step a little bit into the unknown. But you know, if was you, it if, difficult to? I mean, I know you don't you won't remember it, but but do you know that it was a difficult thing to leave even then, or was it sort of beginning no, to I, break no, down? No, no, no. By so then, it was not so difficult. From what right. I understand, it was not so difficult, uh, and um, I think we went. 
because of course Menuhin of was also an influential person not only in the music world but but he knew so many politicians and diplomats and and, and he basically arranged work permits for for my mom and for my for my teacher and I think I went as a study like on some study visa or something like that I remember him being uh, or giving the impression that he was an extremely unassuming man uh, very self-effacing very humble uh, I, but that's only because I saw him backstage you know before a concert where he could be just managing whatever he's going through before he goes on stage is that what he was like when he was teaching yes very much as, as, as much as, as far as I remember yeah I think humble is is a very appropriate word I, I i i felt sometimes he was almost incredibly humble in front of his own talent because i i it's difficult to imagine how talent how talented this 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 man this man was in, in in everything that he did but but as 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 the child prodigy that he was we were talking about this with um Gabor uh, Takashuk a couple of days ago we were having lunch and, and he was saying we, we were talking a little bit about Menuhin and we always talk about this relationship as a, as a, as a instrumentalist between well, a little bit what I was saying earlier but between the brain, the heart and the arms and, and, and with him it, and this is not in any way this is meant really in the highest compliment regard but it almost felt sometimes that he bypassed the brain and even and 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 also the arms were just not important. It was just something that was coming from the heart, and it was so pure and so beautiful and just extraordinary that 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 nothing else was really important. It, it, and I and I think and I, I he talked about a lot how how often he didn't really know what he was doing physically, but it was just happening, and he wasn't just in this world, and he was he was just singing and and making music and and. It just it just happened like that for him. He he talked about also about uh, because I think the older he got, the more he became fascinated by the mechanics of it all. I think for him it was interesting because maybe he never thought about that as a young man. Almost as though the, the older he got, the more he wanted to look under the bonnet. Right, exactly. Right. So because for example, I think if I'm not mistaken, things like the shoulder rest he invented. <laughs> right. I mean, it's now we all uh, now a lot of us play on on shoulder rest, and I cannot. Personally, I cannot imagine playing without one because of the way that I oh, was that was, that, that was down to him. I think that he invented. Wow. Or if he didn't invent it outright, he for sure had his own design. This is, this is because there was one at the Menon School, I remember very proudly. This, this one, one. And he was constantly experimenting with... He had this... Um, he, he created this revolving chin rest, which basically was as you... Because he, 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 oh, always, okay. yeah. he always wanted yeah. to find the most relaxed way of playing and, and so he always which is he's right you know the neck must be free and so he designed this this um, chin rest where as you moved then it would move as well so presumably as a wind player I just need to clarify this with the shoulder rest yeah. that takes some of the the pressure off the left arm meaning that you don't there's mo- a little bit more yeah you don't bit really more movement in the left hand well the idea I think the uh, when when you have to ask people who play without shoulder rest uh, the whole time, but I think basically you, they still use, most of them still use little pillows, little cushions which they put under their jackets or under their shirts to for a little bit of support. But the idea is that without the shoulder rest, it was a little bit more of an arm 
way of playing and, and for example the 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 fingerboard of the violin would be a little bit deeper between the thumb and the first finger where you would hold it a little bit more with the arm and then you'd even sometimes help with the shoulder a little bit to go up to the high positions while with uh with the shoulder rest it's a little bit different basically the idea is that you you only need to hold it with your neck yes and uh with your chin you know you put it here and then the 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 arm is supposed to move more freely and presumably that means that there's less tension. Well, around, it should be it should area. be like that, but but I I don't know. It's it's a it's a very personal thing because okay. anyway, the the golden age, the great violinists of the golden age, they all you know, Heifetz, all of those guys, they played without shoulder rest. Um, I can't think of any other uh, professions outside of the creative arts where people talk about uh, exponents or high flyers from. 20 or 30 years ago I think that's something my assumption is it's specific to art and music is it is it the case that that the legacy of Menuhin is still quite potent amongst violinists today of course but luckily his legacy will live through through you know through recordings and thankfully he he just he arrived basically at the onset of Mm. of recordings so we can hear him in all of his phases of all his life. So we can hear the great, you know, the, there's not as much choice maybe from the 1920s or something, but there's still enough material to, to the, know what the, it was. But the difference now is that, well, I suppose what I'm driving at is that you you knew him, you played with him, uh, you studied with him, whereas your students only have recordings. So they almost have a harder time picking up the magic of, of Menuhin, whereas you have the memory of him. Do you see the yes, distinction? Yes, but... but but I think, in the end, actually, because if what we've been talking about about Menuhin is that he's the most down-to-earth, humble, simple man who, of who, of course, has this presence and has this uh, and and has an incredible knowledge. But but still, we come back to his actual playing, and I think in the end, for any any student, yes, there it's the. There's very few. I mean, there's literally. I think maybe only now. Now with the recent passing of Aaron Rosen, um, there's literally maybe two violinists from that era still alive, which is Ivory Gitlis, who's about to turn Touchwood ninety-seven, and uh, Ida Hendel, who nobody knows how old she is. No, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but she's she's not. But, and she's amazing. Yeah, woman. she's she's, she's, amazing she's woman. not young either. <laughs> um, so and I guess that. But she's very much on it, though. I mean, when I yes. when I met her and talked to her, I didn't I didn't get a sense of she was away from me. She was very much on it. Right. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And I had I had some masterclasses with her. I had some lessons with her. Not not for a while now. I think the last one was maybe about ten years ago, something like that. So I haven't seen her since. Right. But um, no, she's an amazing, amazing lady, amazing lady. But I think. Look, the the one the ones of us who have had this contact with with these legendary figures, all we can do is just pass on what what we the little bits and pieces that we picked up from them. Uh, and what and amongst your students, what are the challenges that they face? And are those challenges any different from yours as a student? I mean, do you, do do you when when teaching? Do you see? Are you reminded of the things that you confronted when you were a student? Um. I think it's it's a little bit. This is probably not a good topic for this because 
honestly um, are you about to say something really bad <laughs> yeah well no it's not, it's not it's not bad i just i just think that that um you know people always talk about kind of in like you say in the arts especially like the good old days the good old days and every, yeah, and in every yeah. sphere these days people are talking about the good old days um and i don't like to do that because i think that actually a lot a lot of what we hear today and what what we uh, and the work and the knowledge today is is really is you know it's 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 expanded in, in many ways. Uh, and so you disassociate yourself. I mean, essentially, by answering it in that way, you're you're effectively you strive to disassociate from from the past when teaching. No, not at all. No, 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 not at all. No, no. What what I'm saying is actually that. Well, for example, my students in Zurich, they um, half you know more more than probably about three quarters of them never went to music school before they come to music music college. It's the same thing is at in the UK. Very very rarely. We do have those three specialist music schools in the UK, but basically, the vast majority and that doesn't say anything. I mean, look at look at how well Sheku is is, is developing and, and playing beautifully, and he went to you know, junior academy and just a normal a normal school. Um, I guess we are. St- uh, I, I'm still from this just little bit Soviet generation. Just I just got in there where we start playing the instrument at six, and that's it. And that's all we're going to do. That is your life. That, 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 off, that's our it? life. Okay. So, of, and I, I, actually, um, just thinking about some of the people who are here in in Verbia, If you look at like Ripon and and how he, there are some videos on YouTube you can find of him playing at twelve years old. And and so how, it was his path the same. Just I saw him play last night. I, yeah, he he followed a similar path to you. Well, probably even more. Well, the difference is probably even more intensely. First of all, and and he stayed in Russia a little bit longer. Um, with 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 his professor with Zakhar Bron and I mean he's a not, I'm not compare that's not a fair comparison that guy is a genius um, but uh, he, he, but th- this kind of generation he's a little bit older than me but but th- this generation so people who were really doing it they would be at it from from a very young age and and that was it and now you have you know very often and again this is there are always individuals who always break through because they're talented and and it's always going to be like that but in general in the soviet system i think the one of the good things was that even if you didn't have the talent of of some let's say the the really outstanding people the teaching was first of all at such a high quality from a very young age that you would still be reaching a certain quality a, a certain level and and you could really you could you could make music at a high level for the rest of your life and have a good position and and, and things like that. Very often, when you are teaching in, in universities today, um, people are coming. You know, they're coming at the age of nineteen, but they they have missed out basically on almost all the basic training that you need. And so often, you're working with a nineteen-year-old as if they are ten. You and are then, under- and, and then you try to catch up as quickly as you can. But it's, so it's for me, it's difficult to to connected because for me it was just so different yes but you are underlining something which is once again very important which is the importance of music education from a very early age which is something in the uk well yes that actually we haven't well we're certainly losing um what is the what do you think is the motivation or what was the motivation in soviet russia was it sort of um nationalistic pride was it love of culture? Was it culture being sort of baked into Russian identity? I think 
first thing, maybe from the government, very much so. But I think for the individual, first, it's the other two things that you say. And also, it was it was a great opportunity also for, 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 for Soviet musicians to travel the world and to... And to play a rap, basically, you know, just 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 leave. Also, I think a, a lot a lot of them felt felt that they wanted to to do that, and um, and it, absolutely, it was ingrained in in you know we have generations of families of all musicians. So often in Russia, you say, "Oh, my dad was this, my mother was this, all all musicians, my grandfather was this." I mean, I, I'm a perfect example, but I'm in no way unique example of that. I'm a third generation. Musician, my dad, my, my my dad in the end decided not to be a classical musician. He was in a rock band, but still, uh, my mom's a pianist. You know, I have Dimitri, my my first cousin, once removed. My uncle, basically, he's a violinist conductor. His mother, pianist. Uh, his father, great violinist. God. So it's and and these in my family, these are these were actually very unique people. My 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 Dima's mother and father are two of the most important. Uh, musicians from the Soviet Union of the 20th century. It's just his father unfortunately died at the age of I think 32 or 33. So there's very, there's only a few audio recordings of him, uh, but which already show just what he would have been on the same kind of importance as a violinist as people like David Oistrakh and Leonard Cogan. I'm, I'm I'm not not in doubt. Uh... Because there is a rehearsal about to start, yeah. I must ask you about Verbier. What is it like coming? Is this your first trip to Verbier? No, this is my fourth trip. Okay. Uh, but my first trip was as a student. I came here for the academy. Well, no, actually, the very first time I came here was on, I was 13, and I came on a holiday with my parents because my uncle Dima, who, had, uh, who is one of the really most, one of Verbier's most important, I would say, musicians of all the 25 years that, that the festival, I think he's, he was here from the very beginning. And right. really, and so he told us, you know, come and, and have a look because it was, it, it was a very, very unique festival from the very beginning. And I th- this, this kind of incredibly exciting small place, but an exciting community where immediately these amazing personalities and musicians all came together and for a short time, because there are plenty of big, big festivals around the world, Salzburg, um, you know, Lowe's, Salzburg, uh, Rheingau, Schleswig-Holstein, Aspen in, in, in America. But these festivals, they, they take their time. And so a musician comes, he plays, he leaves. A group comes, they play, they, they leave. An orchestra comes, they play, they leave. But to be, re- I mean, up to a point, yes, people also don't always come here for the whole period, but still the combinations that you get of musicians performing together i think in verbier is absolutely unique uh, even this this morning this recital between andras schiff and reno capison I, I i wonder whether they've ever played a recital like that bef- before um and i know I, I listened to an interview that martin gave i think it maybe it was last year and he always said that his one of his real aims was to do things here that would not otherwise be ever done elsewhere. So, for example, having these huge eight piano gala concerts where the orchestra is made up of all the greatest instrumentalists of our time and things like that. I I think that's what makes Verbier absolutely unique. So I was introduced to it from 
a very young age because of my uncle playing and I heard him play so many things here um, Brahms double with Lynn Harrow I remember I think in 97 or 98 or something and lo lots of lots of other things over the years and so then I, the next year I came for the academy uh, and then actually I had a I didn't really I mean I was I was still very young at the time so I kind of didn't have anything to do with 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 this place for for as I was growing up and studying and, and learning how to listen and, and and play play my instrument but but eventually I think I got onto um Martin's radar and and we talked a little bit and so this is my third uh, third appearance this year from as a as an artist as an artist so it's, so it's 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 very exciting I, I I love being here and we were at dinner yesterday after after the concert and just the table that we were all sitting at the amount of of I guess talent and also mm. musical knowledge and and yeah, it's a it's a very ex exciting atmosphere to, to uh, be. Verbio is where I finally got to chamber music as a result of going to numerous concerts in the church here, right. uh, and and that was to do with proximity and intensity of the kind that uh, that I don't think you necessarily experience in other sort of more formal right. concert environments. Uh, but the thing that really strikes me is is just seeing familiar faces or vaguely familiar right. faces in the town, uh, and that's rather. That's rather nice because there's no, there doesn't seem any pressure here. It's, it's very calm and it's focused on the music. I think so, and I think it's. I think that also comes with the personalities that are are here on on the whole. You know, these are musicians who are used to playing with absolutely the top orchestras in the top in the top concert halls in the world, and I think this. For them, really, is a celebration. It's I think it's it's something that of, I think there's of course there's a certain amount of pressure when you have so many amazing colleagues around you and they're all coming to listening to each other. Of, I think from that side, but I think it's also a wonderful community mm. of of you know of people who yeah just just really talented and and extraordinarily gifted and also who serve music more than anything else all their whole lives and and I think to have a little part around this environment uh, for me is, is 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 very yeah it's somehow very heartwarming and and very very inspiring very inspiring you've been listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast available on Spotify iTunes and Audio Boom to get in touch tweet at thoroughly good post a message on the thoroughly good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me